Raoul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, <laughs> is your strength. for State District Criminal Court, Taco Tanya. <laughs> Good morning, Taco O. <laughs> Good morning, Taco Tanya. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for filling in. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, good. So tell us a little bit about Tanya, what she's running for and uh, where you grew up and um, what inspired you to seek the position of uh, judge on a felony State District Court. Absolutely. I am Tanya McLaughlin. I'm running for the 262nd District Court. That is a felony court. I am a native Texan from Tyler originally. I came to Houston for law school in 2003, and I have a background in 16 years of criminal law. And so I have been a Harris County prosecutor, a defense attorney, an appellate attorney, all at different times in the court I'm running for. And the big reason that I'm looking um, to get everyone's vote in Harris County is the crime issue. We, it has to be resolved. I have little kids at home, and that was the big decision that if I'm elected, I'll close my practice. Yeah, everything that we've uh, looked at in terms of polling, crime uh, ranks pretty high, uh, especially over the last uh, couple of years. It seems to me that uh, uh, I know COVID exacerbated a lot of things at the courts, but, um, <clears throat> you know, it still seems to be a problem. And... Um, um, you know, I, I spent many years. Actually, I was a probation officer for the 262nd. I did not know that. Yeah, many, many years ago in the late 90s and early, uh, uh, late 80s and early 90s. And uh, so I had a quite a caseload at the time of felons and misdemeanors. But uh, things have changed in our local criminal justice system. Uh, and, and, and that is, you know, um, one of the things that bothers me is these PR bonds, these personal recognizance bonds, I understand the issue of if you're a low-level first-time offender, uh, you shouldn't be thrown into the Harris County Jail for weeks on end if you can't post a bond, right? right. You lose your job, you can't provide for your family, it, it just creates a cascade of events for the, the, the defendant. However, it seems like it's gone a little farther beyond trying to help, you know, the first-time low-level sort of indigent person that can't post a bond to now wholesale releasing violent felons on a the streets. Absolutely. And that is one of the major issues that we're having. Um, we've gone from one extreme to the other. We never want um, a first-time low-level offender to plead guilty just to get out and support their family. However, in the felony courts, um, the bonding rules are different, as they should be. And there is no law saying that everybody should be given a PR bond. And the 262nd in particular has had the highest rate of felony uh, defendants on bond who are reoffending with violent offenses 
such as murder and rebonding. And this is creating um, just a revolving door in these courts. There's at least a 2,700 um, docket caseload in this court. It's not manageable, and the cases aren't being resolved because the defendants are picking up new cases before they're resolving their old cases, which as a criminal defense attorney currently, that's not good for them either. Some people need a little bit of help from us. Some people need to be in custody to, you know, get medicated, get clean from some of the drugs. And so we're actually hurting the citizens um, at large and the defendants. Yeah. You know, it seems to me my friends on the left or the Democratic Party don't learn from the past. You know, people do tend to make the same mistakes over and over. I remember in the late 80s, Texas did not have prison capacity. And so as a result, at the time, I think Ann Richards had pretty much instructed the, um, the uh, Pardons and Parole Board to be generous with pardons. And we were pardoning and releasing violent offenders. And uh, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice would issue a bus voucher, and they were coming on Greyhound buses. You were probably in law school, but I remember <laughs> this well. Uh, they were coming to Harris County. And the crime wave in Harris County was horrific. I mean, horrific, almost worse as today or equally as bad. And uh, it caused the Democrats to be swept out of office. Well, in the crime in Harris County right now, that's what we're seeing. It is affecting all of our neighborhoods, yes. every single one of us, and we all deserve better. Yeah, and, and, and going back to the 80s and early 90s, the crime wave was so bad, everybody still remembers, at least that's my age, the horrific Tracy G incident, which was a young uh, Vietnamese young lady who worked hard. She was a student, but she also worked at the City Club in Greenway Plaza, and she, she, she was working late that night, about 1130 midnight, and she's driving down Brazewood when three felons uh, pull up next to her and just open fire on her, drag her out of her car, run over her body. It was absolutely horrific. And, and those sort of crimes are happening over and over again. And here in Harris County, you know, we see it all the time. And it's once the, the perpetrator is apprehended, we realize they have a long rap sheet. Oh, and one of our local Harris County judges has put them out on a either low bond or a personal recognizance bond. And, and I think people are fed up. Absolutely. I think not only the, the public's fed up, I feel like the atmosphere in even the criminal courthouse, um, I feel lawyers on both sides are frustrated. Um, whether they identify as a Democrat or Republican, I feel like it is, it's becoming such a toxic environment. We don't we just feel like we're getting deeper and yeah. deeper. Yeah, and the duty of uh, civil government is to protect people. I yes. mean, that's why we have, you know, both civil law and, you know, mm. British common law and the penal code and statutes and whatnot. It's to make society work. And when, when one element of that isn't working, I mean, there's it's mayhem. And people literally are afraid to go to a mall nowadays or go to a theater. And anyway, uh, we're just glad that you have decided to – and, and you have a family. I do. I How have, many children? I have two children, a six-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy, and so they were a large part of this decision. I don't let them play in the front yard. Um, that's very different than how yeah. I grew up. Yeah, very different. Well, thank you for 
you know, sacrificing um, your family as well as your time <laughs> yes, uh, to serve uh, the citizens of Harris County, and hopefully you will prevail. Um, you and I talked a little bit about, you know, some of the ridiculous uh, uh, things that government comes up with. And yesterday, uh, Rodney Ellis and Sylvester Turner posted, and uh, Zach, you have that uh, image if you want to post it, that uh, Harris County is uh, going into a buyback program, gun buyback program. Yes. Uh, wh what's interesting to me is, you know, uh, if you look at the bottom left, it says you get a $200 gift certificate. And, and I don't know if you can read that on the screen, but if you turn in your automatic weapon. Now, uh, I asked Tanya to research this. Uh, are, is it legal to own automatic weapons in the United States? So it, it depends. Um, federal firearms law, it, it's not super simple. So this ad um, actually could get some people into legal trouble because there are some firearms that you cannot legally own um, without having um, – purchased it properly, paid the tax, registered it. So I'm not sure how um, some people could even bring in some of the weapons without um, being arrested for being in possession of them. And what little research I did, and obviously I'm not a lawyer, we're going to have two great lawyers on the program today, but uh, as I understand, to be able to even transfer a, uh, because in 1986, the U.S. Congress banned the manufacture and sale of machine guns, automatic weapons yes. to the general public. So you can't own a machine gun after 1986. Prior to 1986, uh, they allowed you to keep your machine gun, but you had to register with the ATF. Now if you sell it and transfer it, you have to apply. Yes. You have to receive a permit from the ATF uh, because the ATF tracks machine guns in the United States. Uh, there are very, very few machine guns left. But uh, I can tell you the government knows who owns them. Uh, and and uh, what's interesting is uh, uh, Rodney Ellis, Commissioner Rodney Ellis and Sylvester Turner, Mayor Sylvester Turner, are offering $200 gift certificates if you turn in a machine gun. First of all, if you can find a machine gun for sale, they range between $15,000 to $30,000. So I can't imagine anyone turning <laughs> machine guns. But anyway, this is how crazy it is. But here's what's troubling about this program. No, no questions asked. And uh, everybody in Harris County knows that one of the biggest crimes that's occurring right now is called a smash and grab. Uh, because repeat criminals know that a lot of Texans carry their firearms in their automobile. So they'll smash the window of your automobile, rummage through your car, and take your firearm. Uh, and then they sell it in the black market. Well, now, you know, this is an advertisement for those dependent on drugs and fentanyl and all other kinds of uh, narcotics to go on a stealing binge so they can turn the guns into either the county or the city they'll get a, they'll get their gift certificate and, and that that has been my biggest concern upon learning about it is that um we're going to see a large increase of theft of firearms if they're just turned over without um having to justify yeah, where yeah. they came from yeah so uh for the next couple of weeks while this bizarre uh buyback program is in place make sure you secure your automobile so today we're going to talk about a really important issue because it's important to us we're texas latino conservatives and uh immigration's been a big big issue for us uh, from the beginning and uh, we have a dear friend who is in my opinion the foremost expert on immigration laws in the united states uh he 
He uh, is is brilliant to talk to. Uh, I enjoy visiting with him on numerous issues, uh, but immigration is is my passion. And and Charles Foster uh, from Foster Global, one of the largest immigration firms here in Houston, is joining us today. So Charles, thank you for being with us, and welcome back to the program. Thank you, Orlando, for that nice introduction. Always good to be with you in person or on Zoom. <laughs> well, good. Listen. Uh, Charles and I go way, way back because when I served on the Houston City Council, I got to know Charles. And then uh, we've always, over the years, over decades, have discussed uh, immigration policy in the United States. And um, Charles, you know, I remind people all the time that in 1986, when the U.S. Congress banned the manufacturing ownership of automatic weapons, was also the last time we had a serious look at our immigration laws. Is that pretty much correct? That's right. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was president and uh, really under the leadership of Al Simpson, a uh, conservative Republican from Wyoming, who just, by the way, received the uh, Medal of Freedom from President Biden. Uh, U.S. Congress passed and Ronald Reagan signed a, uh, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 86, which was a uh, a legalization program for those people that had entered prior to January 182 that uh, had no criminal record that were otherwise law-abiding and they could apply for legalization. That was the last major uh, immigration reform legislation passed. That's also when Congress, the flip side of that was, as Al Simpson told me, it would never happen again because employers would be required to verify status of all uh, new employees. And of course, that really didn't work out as intended. You know, I was, um, I was perusing the internet the other day, and I came across a quotation from Milton Friedman. He says, illegal immigration only works if it's illegal. And uh, you know my position, Charles, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. But, you know, the big driver for uh, illegal immigration or uninspected people crossing the border uh, is low wages. And uh, the minute you document individuals, you know, wages will go up because uh, people then have to fall under the law, both the employer and the employee, and uh, you have to document them. And, and, and so I thought it was a very interesting article. But, um, you know, I think back to issues like uh, taxation without representation. You know, conservatives firmly believe that. But yet we have 14, 15, 16 million families, individuals living in this country that do pay their taxes and have no representation, no voice. Uh, in, in, in 2022, that doesn't seem fair to me. And, and everybody wants to blame the Biden administration. But frankly, you and I know that when the Republicans were in office uh, under George W. Bush and he had uh, control of the Congress because our party was, or, you know, the Republicans were in charge, nothing happened. And same thing under Barack Obama. We've had the Democrats uh, being in charge of the of the White House and 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 the Congress, and nothing happened. Uh, and, and so there's we're not trying to assign blame, but we as a society need to understand that we can't have millions of people in this country living like that, as as you refer to, and many people do in the shadows. That's just not right. Of course, I agree, and that's something as you know I worked on. You mentioned George W. Bush, uh, so when he runs. When he ran for president in 2000, I was his, uh, I like to say his senior immigration policy advisor, for that matter, his junior, because I was his only immigration policy advisor. So uh, he, he actually, uh, we developed what was called, the, I'd say, the basic bones of uh, 
immigration reform legislation, but it, uh, it, it failed to pass. I think in his case, uh, we were all optimistic it was going to pass. Uh, most people forget that on the morning of uh, September 8th, he hosted President Vincente Fox on the White House lawn with the 21-gun salute. They both talked about the importance of immigration reform legislation. It was very heady. It was very, uh, there was a lot of optimism. The president still had his coattails from having been recently elected. But a few days later, uh, of course, the world changed on the morning of 9-11. And it's been very hard uh, ever since then to get anything passed. I like to say in a simplified way, before 9-11, uh, the opposition would say, these people are coming to steal your jobs. But after 9-11, they'd say, these people are coming, they're terrorists, they're, they're coming to, uh, to harm America. So it's been very difficult to pass anything, uh, even though, frankly, uh, if you look at the polling, there's broad support for it. And if you talk to individual members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, they broadly support um, immigration reform along the lines you and I have discussed. Uh, frankly, they're, they're uh, particularly, uh, I have to be quite candid on the Republican side, they're afraid to vote for anything for, uh, for fear that it will be labeled amnesty. So it's been very difficult uh, to find a, a bipartisan coalition to, to pass immigration reform legislation. Yeah, you know, we do a lot of polling, and frankly, we just concluded a major poll in the state of Texas of 1,200 Hispanics, and the results will be letting out pretty soon. But here's here's my issue, uh, and, and you spoke about pre uh, President Vicente Fox of the Bond Party that was elected about the time that George W. was elected here in, Tex uh, in the United States as president. Uh, th yesterday, I believe, uh, there was a meeting between President Biden and President um, uh we call him AMLO in uh, in Mexico, Obrador. And, um, you know, Obrador must have been watching you and I some time ago when we put out what we call family stabilization, right? We called for stabilizing the Hispanic immigrant family that has been here for many years, that is a family, may have married, and now have children that are U.S. citizens. Uh, and we, we asked that the Congress consider... Uh, offering uh, permits that are temporary but yet renewable every few years to make sure there's no violation of the penal code and that people under that status could remain here and we don't have a pathway to citizenship but at least they come out of the shadows and they would be essentially the equivalent of legal residents they're documented uh, which to me seems reasonable and in fact there's a congresswoman a Cuban congresswoman out of Florida that's that's proposed what she calls the Dignity Act that would do the same thing. And what's amazing to me is, you know, Republicans think, conservatives think that any adjustment to the immigration is a pathway to citizenship. There's a lot of things we can do that are not pathways to citizenship. First of all, uh, you know, you, you, you don't get to vote. and You don't get to run for office. But uh, it seems to me logical, especially what's happening today, where Hispanics, there's a major transformation going on in American politics. It's the great realignment, as I call it, that Hispanics are now looking to the Republican Party and supporting Republicans more. I don't know why Republicans wouldn't want to embrace, as Ronald Reagan did in 1986, um, 
you know, a community that are like the Irish come come work hard and then are integrated into the American system and uh, participate politically on both sides. I mean, there's there's no harm in that. Of course, I agree. I, I agree 100 percent. I think you you raise a very valid point that um, what you just described uh, that would bring people, as you said, out of the shadows, giving them the right to uh, work, uh, freedom to travel. I've dealt with so many people that were here, stuck here. They could not go home to their uh, mother or father's funeral. Uh, that's what they want. They want the ability to go to work every day and know that they're going to come home uh, and to be able to, to compete for uh, a, a, a jobs without having to be pressured to work uh, for, for the lowest paid wages. So uh, on, uh, in the, unfortunately, politics gets in the way uh, on the Democratic side. They often, uh, you know, this mantra pathway to citizenship often say that they love these people to death. They love them more than they love themselves. They, you know, they don't want to take any compromise uh, and insist that there be a so-called pathway to citizenship. Although the individuals that would benefit really are just looking for protection, the right to live and work. Uh, sometimes on the Republican side, even that, unfortunately, is deemed to be uh, too far. Uh, uh, again, uh, so that's where that's why nothing has gotten done, as you pointed out, under under Biden or Obama or uh, down for that matter. You know, I I, uh, I was contacted by the CBS affiliate in Dallas last week, and I posted the interview on my Facebook page. But uh, they interviewed me as the founder of Texas Latino Conservatives, and they interviewed the president of uh, Texas LULAC. Uh, he and I had, of course, uh, different perspectives on, and the question was how we felt about the executive order issued by the governor of the state of Texas, Greg Abbott, to now instruct National Guardsmen, DPS, and other law enforcement to transport uninspected or illegal aliens back to the border. Uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to the, uh, you know, constitutionality of that, whether it violates, you know, um, uh, as we say, stare decisis uh, cases decided by the Supreme Court that says that immigration is the purview of the federal government. We're going to see how that works. But Texas, as you know, Charles, because you were born along the border, so you know better than anyone else the burden that we as taxpayers bear of supporting undocumented aliens in this country. We basically pay for the benefits that employers should be paying for. And uh, uh, so, but what I found interesting on the interview was that both LULAC and I agreed that the problem is the U.S. Congress, that they won't get up their collective rear ends and address the issues that are affecting Americans and particularly Texans. We're not off base, are we? No, I, I've always said it's really a uh, legislative pro problem. To illustrate that, I, I, I was sort of fascinated when I, I watched the dialogue between AMLO and the president, and, and uh, I read some of the preliminary stuff coming up to that, where the president of Mexico and the foreign minister was requesting that the uh, president of the United States issue 300,000 work permits for Mexican nationals. They were using this tragic event in San Antonio. 51 people suffocated under worst conditions. Half of them were from Mexico. And so that thought of issuing work permits, because people or young men, mostly young men, are coming up from Mexico, as they have for 
many generations for to work, not necessarily even wanting to stay here, but just to earn a, uh, uh, an income that they can send back home and take care of mama. But the irony was that uh, even though that discussion was going on at a very senior level, the president of the United States does not have the authority to issue uh, 300,000 visas. See, that would take an act of Congress. And, and it's logic says overwhelmingly we we right now in this country uh, the uh, people say 11 million people undocumented you said a higher number could very well be 14 million but no one would seriously think that we would want to remove from the u.s economy today 14 million workers that would even make the our economic situation today much much worse we have millions of job vacancies. I represent fast food uh, owners of fast food chains that have to uh, close in the evening because they cannot get enough workers. And that's right across the economy. Why, uh, as President Bush told me when I first started working for him, why should we have our bar patrol gang tackling someone's favorite nanny or strawberry worker when we need those workers? So we, we should route uh, we should have flexible mechanism where we'll be able to route people into uh, into a legal temporary work uh, visa status that I think should be focused on uh, the North American hemisphere. It could be done to benefit those individuals from Mexico and the northern tier countries in particular. That would be good for them, good for the American economy, good for their support, their local uh, uh, economies as well. So that makes sense. The other thing most people do not focus on is at the top of the food chain. Uh, we, we're worried about competing with China today. China is graduating uh, several million engineers a year. We're graduating less than 100,000, but that's misleading because I represent uh, high-tech companies, oil and gas companies, when they go to campus, they want to hire the engineer with a PhD, to do research with a PhD degree or a master's. About 75% of those are foreign students. And now because of changes in immigration law, the brightest foreign student coming out of Rice University or Harvard or no matter what, statistically speaking, they have no greater than a 20 or 25% ability to stay in the United States, meaning we are now under our immigration system exporting to Canada, back to China, India, what have you, uh, the brightest uh, folks that are graduating here, where at the same time we're saying we want to compete with China in the fields of uh, technology, and yet we can't do that unless we, we bring in more uh, brighter people. So yes, logic tells you that we need a, a uh, the comprehensive became a, almost a dirty word, but I'll use it, comprehensive immigration reform that would deal not only with border security, smarter border security, but reforming our, our immigration system. I still see uh, in the debate that people will say those people should go, should go back home and come in legally. We're, that's an impossibility. It'd be like, it'd be like talking to some low-income kid uh, who's grad, you know, grad, dropped out of school here saying, all you have to do is get, uh, go to Harvard and get an advanced degree. Uh, that kid would have a better chance of doing that than the folks, low-income workers going back to Mexico or anywhere and coming in legally. That would be a legal impossibility. Why? Because we have a very restrictive legal immigration system. 
Yeah, and you know, it's tragic, Charles. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the Hispanic family that's hardworking, that's here just to do a job, follow the law, pay their taxes. And let's just assume their child, born here in the United States, now a legal U.S. citizen, but mom and dad are illegal, uh, goes off to, let's say, they get a scholarship up to uh, Arkansas as a Razorback. And, and uh, assuming the child's involved in a tragic car accident and is laid up in a hospital in ICU, if mom and dad are illegal and don't have identification, they can't travel on an airplane to go see their child. I mean, people don't think of the difficulty uh, of living in the shadows and the separations and the anxiety that's caused by the failures of our federal government. And let me just talk a little bit about failures of, of you know, th there's plenty of blame to go around. And, and I'll let Tanya jump in because I know she's she there's certain things Tanya can't talk about as a candidate uh, because of the canons of judicial judicial ethics, right? Yes. But but if you yes. can jump in, jump in. <laughs> For example, in my own, in our own county in Harris County, I think there's a federal program, right, Charles? Two eighty seven G is that correct? Where in certain counties, uh, at least in Harris County, federal agents uh, can come into the county and screen uh, those that are booked into the county jail for um, notices or warrants from uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement to then pull these people out and, and, and have them set up for deportation. Uh, but there are some of our sheriffs, and I think the current sheriff doesn't allow the federal government to to, to perform the functions of 287G. Is that the case still in Harris County? Are you familiar with that? I, I am not positive. Right now, um, the jail has its so many other issues with overpopulation and um, and violence that I'm I'm not sure where they are on that. Um, without commenting as a judicial candidate on immigration law, um, it is well known that immigration law um, is heavily involved in the practice of criminal law, and um, there are a lot of flaws that affect. Um, undocumented people at a disproportionate rate in criminal law and in the jails. Charles, um, I do remember that uh, when I served as county treasurer, uh, uh, Commissioner Precinct 2, Adrian Garcia, was our uh, ca uh, county sheriff in, Har in Harris County. And he took a lot of criticism from the Democrats, from the left, for allowing uh, 287G in the county jail. I, I, I believe the current uh, sheriff, uh, Gonzalez, does not allow. Is that is that correct? That, that's true. I, I know quite a bit about that. So 287G would be a, a program where a county, city government would enter into a, a, an agreement with immigration. That would be Immigration Customs Enforcement, whereby they would automatically notify ICE if someone was arrested uh, that appeared to be a foreign national that would allow ICE to vet that individual to see <clears throat> determine if they were a foreign national and if uh, it needed to put an immigration detainer on that individual. So under Ed Gonzalez, when he became uh, sheriff, for, for a variety of reasons, he dropped that program. Interestingly, he was nominated by President Biden to be the next director of ICE, and that was probably that was one of several reasons why his nomination was held up to such a point that uh, uh, Sheriff Gonzalez recently said that he was withdrawing his name for consideration because so much time had passed. Now, 
here, here was the tension in the system under 287G. Um, uh, someone like, uh, I'm, sure you, uh, I'm sure you know the sheriff, he would say, look, we have no problem letting ICE know when we detain somebody uh, for, for a serious crime. But the, the tension in the system was when someone was picked up for, uh, I, I'm using this as a, maybe a poor example, for driving without a license or something like that, or, or maybe uh, having too much to drink uh, uh, in a bar, that that person too uh, would be, that ICE would be notified about that person and that not, ICE would put into the immigration system someone like that had never really been uh, involved in a serious crime, but nevertheless would wind up in deportation proceedings. So that was the tension in the system. Yeah, well, uh, not only is there tension in that system for 287G, but I remember when I was a city council member and I served with the former drug czar, um, Lee Brown, uh, when he was mayor, uh, he came up with, the, I guess it was an executive order or a directive to the Houston Police Department, you know, which a lot of conservatives began to call um, uh, sanctuary cities. Um, you know, at, at the time in the 90s, you know, nobody really paid attention to it. And the theory was, you know, I've always found it interesting because I, everybody knows I'm an immigrant, right? I'm, I'm a naturalized citizen from, from a communist country. I, I did apply, you know, for, as a refugee for asylum in the United States, and I was granted that in, by actually the Democrats in 1962. <laughs> it was a Democrat Congress, and it was a Democrat president. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I find it interesting that when I was elected, I took an oath of office. I've taken an oath twice, once when I served in the U.S. military and once when I was elected to, to public office. And in that oath, Charles, it says I will uphold the laws of the United States, of this state, and of the city of Houston, and so forth and so on. And I've always found it interesting how executives or legis local legislative bodies like city councils and mayors can shirk the responsibility of enforcing law, 287G. I mean, I, you know, you don't have the option of deciding, well, I'm going to char I'm going to charge Charles Foster with the DWI, but I'm going to let Tanya go. I mean, I know there's <laughs> prosecutorial discretion, but in general, well, the system becomes crazy if you get to pick and choose who to charge. And, and I think that it, that is in my my area because we have a lot of issues with judges picking and choosing which laws they want to follow and we don't get that discretion it is our job to follow the law <laughs> no right and 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 the more we do this the more we say ice can't come into the local mm -hmm. jail or our law officers will not turn over undocumented aliens or you know, then it becomes a discombobulated system like Latin America. I mean, everybody knows Latin. part of the reason Latin America doesn't work is the corruption. I mean, this is no secret. Uh, and, and the beauty of America, which I remember my father, Charles, in 1962, driving down Main Street, was amazed at how law-abiding Americans were that they actually stopped at traffic lights. Because in Latin America, everybody ran lights. I mean, you know, you... Kind of looked around, didn't matter if the light was red, just took off. And, and <laughs> you know, if we're going to become a country of just whims that elected officials can do what they want, then we, became, we begin to unravel the beauty of this country, which has been said many times, we're a country of laws, not of men. And, and I'm concerned about it. 
All right. I know we're running out of time, and Charles, uh, you know, is an expensive attorney, <laughs> uh, and, and, and rightly so because he's very good. But I want to ask you one last thing, Charles. There's a lot of talk about asylum and refugees at the border, uh, and everybody's saying that, you know, these asylum seekers are now claiming that their neighbor in Guanajuato, Mexico, was mean to them, so they come to the border and seeking asylum. You're not eligible for asylum or refugee status in America if if your neighbor in in a friendly country, a democratic country, is mean to you. Or uh, is that is that uh, one of the clauses under which you can apply for refugee asylum status? Yes, I get I give this uh, your question a lot of thought. So, first of all, as, as we discussed earlier, refugees are individuals who've already been admitted in the U.S. Uh, will always set a ceiling how many refugees are we going to accept and they, they go through a lot of due processing there at any given time there are six ten million refugees in, in uh, camps administered by the United Nations and we accept uh, depending upon who's president anywhere between 50 to 100,000 legal refugees now people uh, you mentioned the fact that you came from uh, from Cuba Cubans came here as you will recall, we had this so-called uh, wet foot, dry foot policy. If you set foot in America and you made a, a uh, credible fear claim of asylum, you could have your case uh, adjudicated. And our asylum laws were enacted in, uh, uh, in 1980, where the focus was protecting people fleeing, as you did, a communist-dominated country. So today, when people basically the vast, vast majority of the people are coming uh, that are that are applying for asylum are coming from the northern tier countries of uh, Central America, but some still from Cuba and Venezuela and Haiti as well, and a few other countries. So the vast majority of those people are fleeing sort of generic uh, violence, crime, poverty, and so while that's understandable, why they like so many people have come here for generations for a better life that does not technically qualify for asylum. You have to show you have a well-founded fear of persecution based upon your ethnicity, race, sex, or your political views, and not that you're, you're fleeing, uh, broad, broadly speaking, violence or poverty. So when you look at the people on the border, when their cases are adjudicated, they've made a claim for asylum, but about 85% of those cases or more will be denied. We have judges here in Harris County that have denied uh, 100%. Now, uh, on average, maybe about 10% or 15% are granted, which is significant because that means that that 10 or 15% have been sent back, but they did have a legitimate fear of persecution that met that definition under the Refugee Act of 1980. All right, Charles. Well, we could talk forever about uh, the need for immigration reform and, 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 you know, try to cajole and encourage Congress to do their job. But, you know, I haven't been successful. Maybe we'll have another show. You know, I, I always invite any member of Congress from the Texas delegation or either of our two senators to come on this program and talk about, you know, their ideas for immigration reform. But no one's ever taken me up on it. So, you know, I still remain hopeful that, uh, the men and women we pay uh, a substantial salary to to go to Washington and make laws and reform laws and amend laws and protect us 
will do their job, but so far it hasn't happened. But we do thank Charles Foster from Foster Global, the preeminent immigration law firm in Texas, probably in the country, for sharing time with us. Charles, it's always great to see you. We want to thank you again and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. I hope that you will uh, uh, enjoy a taco today. Hey, uh, Orlando, Tanya, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I just say one thing. The best hope is uh, low-hanging fruit is if we could pass a, something to protect the DACA beneficiaries and John Cornyn perhaps could show leadership. And next time, let's talk about our favorite Western movies uh, filmed around Fort Clark. We'll do that. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and our friend John Cornyn took a big hit on the gun legislation, uh, and he's probably going to take a hit on DACA. But I agree. I mean, you know, really, that is low-hanging fruit. These kids are Americans. You know, give them an opportunity to stay here. So, Charles, thank you. We look forward to having you back on the program. Bye-bye. Bye. And thank you, young lady, for taking time out. I just let you know yesterday. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so excited. It is the only morning this week I didn't have court. It was meant to be. <laughs> How about that? All right, so your website, if somebody wants to make a donation, because yes. judges, like any other politician, you know, we have to advertise, and, and we can accept donations. And so how do people get in touch with Tanya? How do they support you? How do they make a donation? How do they they have questions about your background? Where do they go? Absolutely. My campaign website is www.tanyaforjudge.com. It's T-O-N-Y-A for judge.com. And I will, as the months progress, be adding information to it, but you can donate. Um, there is contact information a little bit about me, and I'm more than happy um, to come and speak at different organizations or answer questions. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the coming months, and I hope everybody will vote for me in November. <laughs> well, we are going to do our part. Uh, to, as everybody knows, Texas Latino Conservatives has two organizations. We're a nonprofit organization where we engage in discussion of issues. We promote uh, certain um, public policy positions. We educate the community and the political process. We train young people like Mayra Flores, the Mexican-born South Texan that was recently elected as a conservative Republican to the U.S. Congress. We're very, very proud of Mayra Flores. Uh, and, and several other others, um, uh, Monica de la Cruz will be the next one, I predict, and and Cassie Garcia will also be another congresswoman from South Texas, a conservative. Uh, that's what we do. We train young Hispanics that are conservatives to run for office at every level. But we also seek candidates that are qualified for positions that benefit our community. And I'll just say today, because Tanya asked yesterday, what well, would we endorse? So today, Texas Latino Conservatives endorses Tanya McLaughlin for the 262nd Second. State District Court. Yes, and and. I can't tell you enough. Thank you so much. It is such an honor. Um, Texas Latinos mean so much, and it are such a big part of the state. And so I'm very honored for the endorsement. Well, and it's a growing population and a population that is uh, participating more in the political process. And um, so uh, we will send you our logo. We'll send you a small check. We will put you on our list of candidates that we endorsed here in, in Harris County. But Frankly, I feel so strongly about this young lady and her judicial acumen and her command of the criminal justice system. She, as she mentioned earlier, has vast experience as a Harris County felony prosecutor. Yes. Uh, and um, is a Texan from, from, from uh, you have a famous Texan, by the way, from Tyler. 
Um, yes, Earl Campbell, the exactly. Tyler Rose. The Tyler Rose, a <laughs> yes. hell of a gentleman. So, and uh, awesome running back for the Houston Oilers. Uh, but I love, by the way, is it Lake Tyler? Yes, that's, that's a beautiful that's where lake. I grew up. Really? Yes. That's yeah. a beautiful lake. It is gorgeous. I, drive I have a lot of good that. memories from there. Yeah. Okay, so remember Tanya McLaughlin for 262nd State District Court. When you go vote in November, you cannot vote for parties. You have to pick individuals. So go to her website, make a contribution, get involved. Everybody wants to complain about crime in Harris County. And the way to fix it is to put judges that respect the penal code, will follow the penal code, will follow Texas law, and she will be one of those. She's a mom a wife, a community uh, person that cares about our community, and she will be an excellent jurist on the 262nd. So thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next week.